Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. If you would take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me again to Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 9, and we're going to be taking a look at one of those sermons that pastors don't like to preach. And we don't like to preach them because they're hard sayings. They're things that come to our hearts and our minds that Jesus identifies as a truth for us that nevertheless aren't easy to hear. This is also part of, of Jesus' ministry. When he's he's gone from being vindicated in, in what he teaches through his miracles to the point where they're asking questions. Who do you say that I am? And he's starting to have to hear the response of their answers. And it's not always the response that we would hope for. There are many times in our walk that we're challenged. Many times when we try to live up to our potential, the potential that God has given us, that we do the work of the kingdom, that we go forth in His name, that we serve, that we learn, that we subject ourselves to discipleship, and yet when we do precisely what it is we've been called to do in front of the people that we've been called to do it, uh, to be that exposition of God's grace, we're rejected. In this particular passage, Jesus is telling us a couple of things, and this is going to be one of a theme that he's going to carry on through the rest of the gospel according to Luke, is that God requires the best of us and that there are times that even though we do try to give him our best, the other person can say no. So these, this is a challenging passage of Scripture. It's at the bottom end of chapter 9, starting with verse 49. Once you get there in your copy of God's Word, please say amen. The hard sayings of Christ as they've been penned in some of your Bibles. Verse 49, Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. And Jesus replied, Do not stop him. For whoever is not against you is what? Now, this is a passage that some of our more Baptist-oriented churches probably need to hear preached on quite a bit. 
Because that it is said, the only thing that Baptists don't do, uh, do more than uh, eat together is split. We have that reputation. In fact, I came from a, a local association in Kentucky, just on the other side of the Ohio River, where in five years of ministry in those churches, we had seen the disfellowship of two congregations for nitpicky things. Now, these are like-minded churches. These are like-faith churches, as we would call them. And yet, over political disagreements, not the stuff necessarily within the church, but for matters of politics rather than theology, for matters of choice rather than God's sovereignty, you weren't Baptist enough. And here Jesus is giving us a clear uh, instruction that you're called to be one body. Now there's a little something different that we each offer to the body of Christ, but it's still the body of Christ. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But as we're going through these passages, if something strikes you, I want you to underline it or take notes of it. And this is one of those passages that I believe as ministers of reconciliation that we need to take note of. Verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samarian village, Samaritan village, excuse me, to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Now, if you'll remember, he had stopped in uh, Samaria beforehand. And there was the episode with the Samaritan woman where she heard his voice and where she saw within him a prophet sent by God and asked him questions. And he revealed to her not only his own divinity, but her own flawed uh, outlook on life. And she was healed spiritually and went out to her village and did what? She evangelized for him. This Samaritan village became a central point through which eventually missionaries would come in that area. But now as he's journeying back to it, he is being rejected because he's resolutely heading to the cross. He cannot stop. And they hear about this and they understand that this is his intention. Maybe not necessarily that he was going to, to, uh, to give his life, but that he was going to be passing through. They wanted him to stay. They wanted him to identify with them. They wanted him to lift them up and say that they were the correct ones. They wanted him to be a source of healing to them specifically. Ignore the Jews. Ignore the power structures. Ignore Jerusalem. But he was bound and determined because he knew the calling on his father's heart. So if you're not going to stay with us and be the person that we want you to be, notice I didn't say the person you need us to be, then you have no part with us. Another case of division. The people there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, the sons of thunder, saw this, they asked, Lord... Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Do you want us to do what Elijah did? 
When he saw the unbelievers at Mount Carmel, do you want us to pray that God would send down a vengeful wrath on these people because they weren't who we wanted them to be? Jesus turned and he rebuked them. I haven't come to destroy, but to heal. There's going to be time for wrath later. There's going to be time for vengeance later. The day of vengeance of our God has not yet come. This is the time. This is the ministry of reconciliation. This is the time to draw people together. This is the time to demonstrate love, not vengeance. This is the time to demonstrate compassion, not judgment. This is the time to teach truth, but truth with what? Love, you have to be firmly grounded in the truth, but you have to be willing, able, and ready to, as Peter would put it in one of his letters, do this with gentleness and respect. See, that's what we get wrong many of the times. And that's also one of the reasons that we're so hesitant to teach the gospel to others is that we forget about that love and respect. The devil loves a pendulum swing. The devil loves it when we not only are grounded in the truth, but become fanatics about it. Where we may understand the true things of God, but we get so enraged with them that we become bearers of the gospel in hatred, that we clothe the love of God by seeking to be ministers of judgment instead of ministers of reconciliation. Do you understand my meaning? Jesus is effectively rebuking John, who we think of as the, the, the least masculine, I'll put it that way, of the disciples. And he's now calling for God to send down thunder, or to send down fire. But Jesus is rebuking them. The gospel is a message of God's truth, a message of of God's expectations of us. And we're going to get into that in just a second, but it's also a message of love. Heavenly Father, as we delve into this part of your word, Lord, there are many facets for us to study. There are many things that this simple, that this, it's anything but simple, that this passage will instruct within us. So open our hearts that we might receive everything, no matter how disjointed it may appear, Coalesce it together for us. Open our ears to understanding and open our hearts to be receptive and transformed. To be the people that you've called us to be. To understand our place in your kingdom and just as your body has many parts, help us to recognize how those parts, how we fit together in the church to act together, to work together in common cause. And that's the cause of the building of your kingdom here. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. So there's a cost of acceptance here. Rather, there is a cost of us ever being accepted. Of the passage that we've just read, there are a couple of truths that we can take from it. First of all, that if you are a bearer of the gospel message, and you are uh, holding on to it the way that... God wants you to, not the world wants you. The world wants you to admit before men that Christ is not the only way. That with each and every religion, there is a pathway to everlasting life. That it's not what you believe, but that you believe. 
When Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes unto the Father except by me. God does not want to be first on a list of 10 or 20 or so forth in your heart. He wants to be first on a list of one. He is exclusive because he had to be exclusive. When Christ uh, knelt down on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane on a hard stone in the middle of the night to pray, let this cup pass by me three times, sweating drops of blood, calling out to the Father for mercy, and the Father had to say, no, let me ask you if there was any other way do you think that he would have his only begotten son still march to the cross? This was the only way. The fact of the matter is there was no other way. Our first, best, and only hope is in Him. The world doesn't like that message, and it will buck up against that message. You will not be accepted by the worldly if you hold the gospel the way that Christ calls us to hold the gospel. You will be actually persecuted by the enemy, by the world, the flesh, and the devil. You will come under fire for being a holder of the truth and by holding on to spiritual truth in the face of earthly temptations and powers. You will also be attacked by the disbelieving. Pastors used to, back in the day, have this almost paramount view by the people that they worshiped with. trying to be paragons of devotion themselves. The harder you try to preach the Word of God, the more you're going to come under fire. Yet that's the responsibility and the calling that's been granted to each and every one of us, not just us back here, but you all as well. So the question ultimately that we have to ask ourselves, do we have enough backbone to stand up and say that Christ is the only way, that God is the only God, that the way that we live our lives in our current society is in rebellion against His desires for us? Do we have the strength of character to say that there is only one God and He has expectations of those that He created? There's a cost to holding on to the gospel. And that's that we have to let go of everything that makes us ourselves alone. We are called to work together as one body in common cause. The Apostle Paul goes to great detail to say that we're all gifted for different things, that we're all gifted to observe different sides of the same theater and to work in different fields, but all towards the same goal as a team together. Just as you can't put a baseball team together without a pitcher, a catcher, the infield, and the outfield, you can't have a church without people devoted towards worship, evangelism, missions, and discipleship. We have people who are wonderfully gifted to each of these tasks, and we all have to fit that together in order to make the church happen. No one can do it alone. You're all gifted for a purpose, at least 
One spiritual gift for everyone who's in possession of the Holy Spirit. The question is, do we know what those gifts are, and do we have the, the willingness to put them to work? Do we, are we, we are also to support each other as friends, meaning no matter what our life circumstances are, no matter what happens to us in this fallen world, no matter how difficult the world may seem at times, it's our duty to come alongside each other, to lift each other up, to take each other by the shoulder, and to make sure that we can walk through it together. We are a community of faith. Remember, the first disciples didn't just walk from place to place together. They actually lived together, working together, learning together at the feet of Christ. Now, we might not have apartments here in the church house, but we're called to be just as close-knit. You're not just a brother or sister in Christ based on the fact that we attend the same church. That's not just an old-fashioned way of identifying each other. That's the truth. We are a family called out by the blood of Christ. We are to strengthen each other. We are also to refrain from competitiveness. Now, it is no secret that there are some churches out there that seek not to grow the church by means of evangelism, that is, reaching out to the lost, but rather trying to dismember other churches by lying about them, slandering about them, sometimes even from the pulpit, and then dragging their members to that other church. How do you think Christ views it when somebody talks against his bride? We are to refrain against competitiveness. That's one of the reasons that, that Christ rebukes John the first time, saying that if this person is not against you, then he is in fact for you. Work together as Christians. That's the same outside the church as it is inside the church. Just because Sister Bertha better than you can create a, 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 um, a brownie that is out of this world, and Sister Mary Jane such and such can create a broccoli casserole, that doesn't mean that they always have to be in competition with each other. Heaven knows that a potluck, there's always things around that we need. And there's always things around that are good to eat. We each bring something to the party. No one should be, just because someone's good at something that you also have to be good at, don't compete with them. Praise God for them. Work together. It's not about titles. It's not about popularity. It's about the body of Christ standing together in the face of a world that wants to see you fall. This is when we need each other the most in unity together. There are some ground rules, though. And this is more about churches working together than anything else, because there are churches out there that claim to be Christian, but yet do not hold to the most essential elements of the Christian faith. Now, I'm not talking about predestinationism versus free will versus uh, old regular Baptist versus uh, the primitive Baptist. Every time I hear that word, I think of cavemen gathering together and singing gospel songs. It doesn't, you know, there, there's every way that we can imagine we can dismember the body of Christ. But there are some people there that do, in fact, give it a bad name based upon some really bad theology. 
There are some basic ground rules. First together, do we accept Him as Savior and as Lord? Or do we place our own interests and desires above His? Do we, when we come to the church house, do we stop and shake the dust of the world off of our boots before coming in? Do we drag the things of the world into a place that it doesn't belong? The church should and is an ambassadorial complex meant for heaven, not for the things of earth. If it's popular out there, it probably shouldn't be popular in here. Next thing I want us to take us a look at is make sure that whoever we're in league with, in whatever ministerial capacity it happens to be, we hold to the facts of the Trinity, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are who they say they are, are who the Bible describes them as, that God is, in fact, the creator of all, that Jesus is the risen King, for without the resurrection we are of all men most miserable. The resurrection has to be there in order for the gospel to work, because that is our hope. Jesus is not only the risen Savior, He's the risen King of the universe. God incarnate and sacrifice, Savior and Lord. A sacrifice that we could not provide for ourselves, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of. But in Him we have redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His, His mercy, His grace. So that's the basic essentials of Christianity. We also have God the Holy Spirit the author of Scripture, the empowering presence within the heart of every believer, the unifier of the capital C and the small C church. Of these things, there can be no debate. Of these things, there is no live and let live. These are the essentials, the framework of the Christian faith. Amen? This is also the way that Peter kind of goes along with what Jesus was telling us and to work together. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic in love. Incidentally, if you do have memory verses, please jot down this scripture reference somewhere in the flyleaf of your Bible. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. We really need to take a look at that verse. That's its own sermon one of these days. I'm serious. When we're talking about other churches slandering yours, when we're talking about the world coming up in arms and batting at the church with pitchforks and torches, we cannot offer the same type of evil that they're wanting to offer us. The only way that we can win against hatred is with a very secret and powerful weapon that we have. And that is what? Love. They will know you are my disciples by your, by your love. It's a very simple and yet very powerful weapon. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. Bless even your enemies. Bless those who are on the political circuit that don't agree with you. Pray for their enlightenment. Don't pray for their downfall. Don't pray for their misery. Don't pray that they soon enter into death. I've actually heard that from the pulpit. Pray for their enlightenment. Pray for their blessing. Pray that they become the person that God always intended them to be, that they use their office for good. 
Same thing with everybody in your life that you disagree with. Don't pray for their downfall. Pray for their blessing. Pray for their enlightenment. Pray that you learn how to be a conduit of God's blessing in their life so it will take shape. Pray that, pray that you are a part of that. Those holding to the Christian gospel in their hearts demonstrate generosity to those in need. We've talked about this. These are the hallmarks of who we're called to be, the transforming presence that you were supposed to reflect as a Christian. Kindness to those of a different faith. So that if the difference is, is beyond what we can reconcile with, hopefully they'll see something in you that is a convicting presence to them. Patience to the quarrelsome. Patient to those who are angry with you. Patient to those who disagree. Love to each other. Be open about your own beliefs. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to back away. I remember once watching a TV show, a sitcom by the name of Boston Legal. I hate even to admit that I've ever seen that show out loud. But there was one scene where a senior partner of a law firm looked at a junior partner and said, I know your dirty little secret. You go to church. That shouldn't be a dirty little secret. That should be at the forefront of who we are. If you're a person of good character, a person with a transformed presence, you should not hide away. We just uh, preached a few sermons ago that those who disown God before others, God will also dis or Christ will also disown before His Father. That's not something that you want to be on the receiving end of. We should not be quiet about who we are. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are also the recipients of a peace that, all, that passes all understanding in troublesome times. Now, there will be times that we are hurt. There will be times when things come our way, living in this fallen world, that strive to take our joy away from us. But to praise be to God that He will grant us what we need to recapture that joy, to hold on to that peace, to anchor ourselves in Him. Now, if you undergo that, that doesn't mean that you're rotten as being a Christian. That just means that you need your brothers and sisters behind you to help you find the way. And in the church, we need to be there for each other. Bless you. And as always, we need to hold and be possessed of a courage that enables us to minister in a fallen world. Now, sometimes that's not easy. Most of the time, it's not easy. It's why we need to remain in the Word so that we can hear the voice of God and that we need to be on our knees in prayer. That way He hears our voices. And we need to see His love lived out in each other. And through that there is strength. Just as iron sharpens iron, you are who, who we have to go to. You are the community of believers. When something goes wrong in our day-to-day -day lives, we are the safety net that God has wonderfully put into place to catch each other when we fall, to strengthen each other when we falter, to embrace us and catch our tears when we enter into the worst times of our lives. You are the antidote to life in a fallen world for each other. Let's continue on. Jesus and his disciples 
went to another village. And as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes and dens, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no, no place to lay his head. Now, for those of us that were blessed enough to live in the 20th and 21st centuries, where we have this wonderful thing called air conditioning and heat pumps. This is an interesting and a challenging verse. And I know that sounds kind of glib, but I want you to think about this. When somebody comes up to Jesus after hearing him minister and says, I want to be a disciple of yours, he doesn't respond by saying, okay, sign up, or he doesn't just hand them a pamphlet and declare him a member of the church. He gives them this warning. Foxes have dens, birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no word to rest his head, to lay his head. Be know what you're getting yourself into when you ask that. Because it will mean a life of hardship. There are central truths to the life of a Christian ministering in a fallen world. The first is that ministry is a universal calling within the body of Christ. No matter what church you go to, no matter what you happen to believe as far as being Christian is concerned, if you're part of the orthodox state of Christianity... I don't mean the denomination orthodox, I mean the given fact of the death, burial, and resurrection, then you have a calling on your heart to minister in some way, shape, or form. There are none in the body of Christ who are called to remain inactive. Everybody is supposed to have a ministry. Everybody is supposed to be engaged. A church that accepts anything less than 100% involvement, barring shut-ins, needs to really take a look and who they are as a church. A church requires to function 100% participation 100% of the time. Ministry is a universal calling. As, as Peter himself said, you are a peculiar people. You are a royal priesthood. All of you are called into some form of ministry. And another fact of the matter is there are going to be hardships. There are going to be times in your life when living in a fallen world takes its toll, where you have no earthly comforts, where you remain in a state where you wonder where the next meal is coming from. But God has already anticipated it. The same God, who is the same today, yesterday as he was uh, today, and same today as he was yesterday and will be forevermore, already knows what you need before you ask already knows every concern on your heart, already knows every mistake that you're probably going to make. And guess what? He's already worked it out for you. Being wholly reliant on God is freeing because it means that no matter what you've been called to, if God calls you to it, God's going to get you through it. That's not just a bumper sticker. If God asks you to perform a function, God has already anticipated anything that could possibly go wrong and is plotted out so that His Word will go forward. My Word, He says, will not return unto me void, but will accomplish that for which I send it. Paul writes, Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me. Note that. Not just what you read, but who you are. The God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care of me. He's writing this, uh, this 
letter to the church at Philippi because while he was in jail, they sent him a gift of comfort. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. God called Paul to be in a Roman jail. God chained centurions to his side, not so that Paul couldn't get away from them, but so that they couldn't get away from Paul. And the weird thing is, the jailers that were there with him converted. God used him in his darkest hour to shine a marvelous light in a dark world. And one of the things he prays for is this gift that comes to him from his brothers and sisters in Christ. We need each other. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. And I don't say this out of need, for I have learned, and this, this should be all of us, I have learned to be content whether, in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know what it is to make do with little, and I know what it is to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. If you do not have this down, as a set of memory verses, jot it down right now. I have learned the secret of being content. The secret at looking at things through God's eyes to find that peace and joy. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need, I am able to do what? All things through Him who strengthens me. No matter life's circumstances, whether in need or whether being able to supply the needs of the men, the needy. Whether hungry yourself or doling out soup to those who are starving, God can do all things through us. He who strengthens you will ensure that you accomplish that for which He sends you out. So what's our expectation? There's an old pastor's joke that basically says that if you really want to make God laugh, tell Him that you've made plans. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? In this instance, Jesus has another hard saying for us. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now to understand this passage, you have to understand that uh, to the Jewish mindset of this day, Taking care of your family was considered something of paramount importance. Honoring and respecting and learning from those who pass away, or in this case, who are near to passing away. If, if his father, we assume that if he, his father was already dead, that they couldn't have this conversation because in this climate, almost the instant that someone is confirmed to a passing away, that's when you have the funeral service. That's when you prepare them for burial. Remember, we're talking about an arid desert climate here. So it is very much in their custom that uh, you don't wait until they pass away before you get the funeral underway. You get started on the plans when, in, in our context, when they enter into hospice. Lord, first let me go and bury my father. One of the toughest phrases ever found in Holy Scripture. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their dead. But you... Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He's not asking to abandon his family. He's asking 
to make sure you've got your priorities straight. The calling of the gospel is the highest possible calling above everything else. And if you have been saved, that is indeed your calling. First and among everything else, including in the Jews of the day, the mindset is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. God is exclusively first in your life. Let me say that again. God is exclusively first in your life. Calling Him God and saying that He is Lord is not an academic exercise. It is a reality that you live moment by moment, day by day. Every decision, every imagining, every choice for your own entertainment, all of it is subject to who God is in your life. So when Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, what he's saying to us is that the calling of God in your life, if your call is to preach, then your call is to preach. That is, if God tells you that this is what you are to do, then it's the very primary thing in your life that you need to be concerned about. Again, not first on a list of ten, but first on a list of one. Those who, are claim, who claim the gospel are beholden unto the will of God first and foremost in their life. They're subject to a plan not of our own design. Many of us that are behind the pulpit now did not in our wildest or vainest imaginings ever see ourselves here. I can tell you that's the case with me. I would not willingly have chosen this as a career path if someone had promised me all the riches in the world. And oftentimes it is that when we come to the altar for the first time, God already knows the path and the plans that He has for you. The question is, are we wise enough to bury that down and to put it away in favor of the things of Him? Or do we still strive to be in rebellion against Him? Everything that you do, every, every aspect of who you are, God has already set out a plan for and we are subject to His plan. Those who claim the gospel are also subject to a call, not of their own choosing. God has wonderfully, fearfully equipped you to do something as part of the body. And it might not be something in your comfort zone. Hear me. He may call you very well to do something that you are afraid of. Those that are pastors aren't always called to be public speakers or don't always feel like they've been called to be public speakers. Let me rephrase that. Some of us have a fear of public speaking. Some of us literally hate the fact of giving up here because we get a panic attack every time we just see a pulpit, much less get behind one. But yet that's what God calls us to. And that's the way with all of us. Just because we have something in our own hearts that say, I can't do it, doesn't mean that's, what we're, that's not what we're called to. Because if it's God that does it, God will make a way. It's not your fears that dictate your ministry. Write this down. My fear does not dictate my ministry. God dictates my ministry. God dictates my ministry. And if He calls us to a specific ministry, He will empower us for that ministry. 
He will not set you up for failure. We're called to love God above everything else. That's the cost of devotion. That if we are wholly devoted to Him as we are called to be, as professionals, professors of the faith, that doesn't mean you have to have a doctorate, that just means you have to know why you believe what you believe and are willing to explain it. That which we profess is our profession. If we hold to it, we remember who we're subject to. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. If you're called to something, and that something involves laying aside part of who you were, this is a hard one to say. You can't turn around and long for that which you've left behind. You can't turn around and long for that which you have left behind. You can miss the people in your lives, but you can never go home again in the same way. If God calls you into something, He will make your pathway for you. What does it say that we turn around and try to to put a straight line in one direction by turning around and looking at nothing but what's behind us? To long for the person that we were before conversion. To long for the vocation that we had before our profession. To long for this piece of ourselves that we were before God called us out of the darkness and into, you should never crave the darkness. Don't walk backwards. Don't try to get what God ha- don't try to get where God is pointing you by turning and looking at the opposite direction. In today's time, we would say you can't drive if you're staring always in your rearview mirror. That's what Jesus is saying. If God has called you into something, including the ministry of the local church, you can't long for that person that you were. Those who claim the gospel are called to love God above everything, to be a minister first, called to be separate from the things of this world. That's what sanctification means. A process of separation from the temporal to the eternal. Called to be wholly reliant on God. That's the central point of the sermon, if anything. It's not about you. Not your wants, not your desires, not your hopes, not your plans, not your dreams. But everything that you are will be blessed. Maybe not the way you expect but will be blessed if you remain subject to God first above all. Now conclude with this passage in Matthew where Jesus is explaining the central truth. No one can serve two masters, either the past or the future call of God, either the darkness or the light. Either he will hate and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's in in fact what mammon means 
just in case you were ever wondering. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. Don't be greedy. Don't hold on to the things that are just going to weigh you down and anchor you, drowning you in this world. What you will eat or what you will drink about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more important than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Ask yourself that. Can any of you add one moment to your life by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe the wildflowers of the field as they grow. They don't labor or they don't spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do so much more for you? And ye of little faith. So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek those things. The unbelievers, that's what they occupy themselves with. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be provided for you. Central truth for the believer. In the midst of a fallen world that we're called to minister, in the midst of all the challenges of this life, in the midst of the people that say no to you, that don't like you, that want to scurry back to the darkness through all of it, God has has already made a way if we but seek Him first, if we put Him in the place of our lives that He is always meant to be, then by the fact that He's up there as primary in all our lives, everything else will fall into balance. God wants to bless you. God wants to bless you. And He has prepared a life that is meaningful, that is filled with joy, that is filled with His peace that passes all earthly understanding. It might not be what we want for ourselves, and it might not be filled with the blessings that we had hoped for. You might not call to be a rich person, but you may be called to be the saint that many people point to when they see that you face hard times and are unaffected, or when they see themselves filled with fear and you come alongside that person and you offer them your shoulder to cry on and your sense of hope. When they can't hear the loving voice of God over the sound of their own screams, and yet you're there with them, that person may thank God one day for the fact that you were there. Our ministry is a blessing to us. Put God first and allow Him to dictate And you will be blessed. And not only that, you will be a blessing to others. And all God's people said. Heavenly Father, as we transition now to worship at your table, forgive us for the times that we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us 
for the times that we have looked to ourselves instead of looking to you. Forgive us of the times when we did not love you above all else as you called us to, but instead made a mess of things by putting ourselves first or our wants or our desires. Help us to see you with all clarity. Help us to avoid the trap of this world and instead place our faith in you, the author and perfecter of all that we are. Set us to be the hands and feet of Christ. Set us to joyful obedience. And for our brothers and sisters, Lord, help us to always be there for them. As we labor together, help us to be one body. In the most holy name of Christ, we pray. All God's people say. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.